Welcome to Now on Netflix, your weekly guide to what you must be watching. This week, I'm making a liar out of myself already because today we are not talking about what you should watch. This week, we're talking about what you should have watched all year long. Today's episode of Now on Netflix is our year in review of the best movies of the year. I'm Jessica Shaw. You may know me from SiriusXM. As always, joined by my dear friend and the smartest pop culture guy on the planet, Mr. Henry Goldblatt, executive editor of Todoom.com. Hello, Henry. Hey, Jessica. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. How was it for you looking back on this year in film? We're going to talk comedies, dramas, documentaries, because we're smart people, you and I. Uh, what was it like looking back? <laughs> You're a smart person. I'm not so sure about myself, Jessica. It was really interesting looking back. And what I like about the list we compiled is that there's literally something for everybody. As you mentioned, there's documentaries, there's comedy, there's stuff that makes you think, there's end of the world apocalypse, there's a oh, May-December romance, there's plenty for everybody to love. And so I like the diversity of the list. And it was nice to revisit some of these films because some of them I hadn't seen in like six or eight months. And so just to go back and relive them, I enjoyed that too. I mean, let's kick it off with something that is brand spanking new. And that is our number 10 on the list, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, which truly just came out. Of course, this is the much anticipated first part of the film from director Zack Snyder. First of all, tell us about the plot of this, how was watching this film for you? Uh, Jessica, this is one that I had the fortune of watching, like, I think back in August or something like that, and then went to revisit it. So there are things that I had forgotten from August that were nice to remember again. So this film is basically a space opus about a group of ragtag rebels who have to defend their part of the galaxy, their part of the universe. And what I like about this film is almost its Avengers nature and quality. Cora, who's played by Sofia Butella, is the, sort of the leader of the gang, and she goes around to different corners of this galaxy to pick up people who have different skill sets than she does and she thinks they're going to become sort of the perfect ragtag army and of course they all have certain quirks of personality and it's just a real like I say this with absolute love but it reminds me of like a Scooby-Doo adventure in the best way because mm -hmm. like they're just different people with different strengths and they all come together to fight evil. You mentioned Sofia Butella who plays Korra. The rest of the cast is also incredible. You've got Jaiman Hansu as General Titus, Michelle Wiesman, Charlie Hunnam, I'm Jenna Malone, so many people but I kind of always feel like a Zack Snyder movie is starring Zack Snyder because his mind is such an incredible kind of place to be. I mean, when you think about the things that he did for this film, I mean, he had a brand new currency created for this universe. He had new languages written. He had religious iconography that had not existed before. It's just the attention to detail is downright staggering. Jessica, you're absolutely right. The world building here is just astronomical and you can imagine how this would live on so many different platforms. I'm not saying I have any inside information about this, but like there could be video games and there could be AI spinoffs. This world just feels infinite and really, really interesting and robust and I enjoyed it so much. And as you say, this is not the last moment we will be there film-wise because part two is coming out in April. This film, I will not spoil it, ends on a wonderful cliffhanger, which I trust will be resolved in part two and I'm waiting with bated breath. If you know anything about Zack Snyder, you know that there's always going to be a Snyder cut as well. And I believe he shot scenes specifically to air in the extended cut, right? That's correct, Jessica. The current movie clocks in around two hours, and I believe the Snyder cut is more like 240. So there's going to be a lot more additional robust material. All right. Well, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, just came out. 
Jessica, at number nine is Rustin. And this is a film about civil rights activist Rustin, who was an advisor to Martin Luther King and how he helped organize the March on Washington. And his story has not been told, in part because it's been buried by history because he was um, not only, of course, black, but he was gay as well in the early 60s. And he was an out gay man. You can imagine how that went over in the early 60s. And I was just listening to an interview with Coleman Domingo, who plays Rustin. And I just loved the way he described Rustin. He's like, who could have thought that this man who was a lute-playing Quaker who sang Elizabethan songs would also be a civil rights hero? And this man just contained multitudes, and it's so wonderful to finally see his story on screen. Oh, absolutely. And when you think of even the people behind the scenes, the great George Seawolf directing, the film is co-written by Dustin Lance Black, one of my favorite screenwriters, and just the cast. I mean, I feel like I wanted to call out a couple of people that really stood out to me. Jeffrey Wright, I thought, is Adam Clayton Powell Jr. He is such a powerhouse as an actor. I wanted more. Like, I want the wolf cut. You know, we're talking about the Snyder cut. I want George Seawolf's, you know, all the takes that he did not get into the film with Jeffrey Wright, who is so brilliant. And you mentioned that you were just listening to an interview with Coleman Domingo. I have to say, that guy is on another level. And I've seen him on stage before. I've seen him on screen before. And I had no idea how he's just so magnetic in this role. It's like, you can't even believe he jumps off the screen in such an impressive way. It's not surprising on any level that he was just nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Drama. I mean, he's got to be a strong contender because to me, this is the performance of his career. Jessica, it's so funny. He was talking about how he was 51 when he was filming this movie and that Rustin was also 51 as he was organizing the March on Washington and that Coleman Domingo was saying he had all this lived experience that he finally felt like comfortable enough in his own skin to go ahead and play this character. And he also talked about how after filming, he went to visit Walter Nagel, who is Rustin's widow, who lives in the same apartment that they lived in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City, and how the apartment itself is almost a museum dedicated to Rustin with various artifacts from his life. And it was really intriguing and really added to the richness of this movie for me. The number eight movie on our list is Leave the World Behind, which is written and directed by Sam Esmail, who did Mr. Robot, among many other things. And it stars Julia Roberts and Mahershala Ali. Julia Roberts plays this woman who goes with her family to this fancy house on vacation on Long Island by the beach. They think they're going to have a super nice time. And then a blackout happens. And then different just weird things go on. And I don't want to spoil too much, but oh man, did this movie give me a panic attack. Jessica, all I can think of and all I'll say to our listeners out there is if you think your holiday is bad with your family, just watch this film. It could be so much worse. What struck me about this film is the masterclass in acting that it is um, between Julia Roberts, who you mentioned plays Amanda, who's sort of like this Karen-like character from Brooklyn who has all sorts of entitlement, and then Mahershala Ali, who plays G.H. Scott. He claims to be the owner of the house that they are staying in in Long Island, and he arrives with his daughter, Ruth, who's played by Mahala, who you may know from the HBO show Industry. And she's just fantastic, too. Ethan Hawke plays Julia Roberts' husband. It's a wonderful collection of actors and just, as I said, a masterclass in performing. Yeah, and even someone like Kevin Bacon, who has a relatively small role, you see him very early on in the film and you think, oh, he's going to be around for a while, and he's not. But when he is on screen, it is uh, very potent. I mean, a lot is being talked about about how creepy this is and how tense it is. And I was just saying it gave me a panic attack. But I have to say, one of my favorite 
favorite scenes in the film is when Julia Roberts and Mahershala Ali, at one point they go and they, you know, pull out records and they just have this impromptu dancing moment. In a movie that can be very tense and stressful, it's a real moment of levity and of the world may be ending, let's dance. And I really appreciated the way Sam Esmail could kind of toggle between so many different emotions. Jessica, I'm the first one who will watch a movie like through closed fingers, covering my eyes like that is my go to. I was only scared during one scene of this. If you're not a fan of like scary or horror, whatever, you're going to be fine watching this movie. But what I liked so much about it was just sort of the random symbolism and references that Sam Esmail drops throughout this. Like there's a whole subplot about friends. Deer just start gathering first by the dozens and then by the hundreds. And there's no real explanation for it per se, but there's so much grist to think about here. And it's a movie that I will rewatch and ponder. And I imagine I'll get new things from each time I do. I was just thinking as you were talking that, oh, you know what? I think I actually want to rewatch this and appreciate some of those very weird moments and some of the, the really beautiful ones, because Lord knows he can frame a shot. At number seven is You're So Not Invited to by Bomp Mitzvah. This is an Adam Sandler movie. Um, it was directed by Sammy Cohen. It's about BFF Stacy and Lydia, who are both planning epic bat mitzvahs, but they could unravel thanks to some boy drama and middle school drama. And Vulture called this the best bat mitzvah movie ever. And I'm inclined <laughs> to agree. It stars Adam Sandler's daughter, Sunny, and she can act. She plays Stacy, and she was like a revelation to me. I thought she was terrific. What do you think of this film? I loved this movie. I love a teen movie. I mean, I was raised on the John Hughes movies, now problematic, then, you know, 1980s. And it's in my DNA to really gravitate toward teen movies. And so I just thought this was so wonderful. It's based on a book, but the way it was adapted was just very lighthearted. But also there's a, a lot of charm and a lot of meaning to it. And you mentioned Sunny Sandler, who is Adam's real life daughter, who plays his on-screen daughter, Stacy. She is, as you said, such a revelation. Anytime we see, oh, super famous person is in a movie with his kids, you're sort of think to yourself, Rutro, this is not going to end well. And it was the absolute opposite. I just thought, oh my God, Sunny Sandler can't wait to see what she does next. There's some real talent there. Not surprising. She has amazing comedic timing. And Sadie Sandler, who plays Stacey Friedman's older sister, Ronnie, who is also Adam Sandler's daughter, she's a smaller part, but very dry, very sarcastic. And I just thought she was hilarious too. And I mean, Sarah Sherman from Saturday Night Live plays Rabbi Rebecca, who is just an immediately iconic, hilarious character. And this was a movie that I actually thought about a lot after having seen it, because you could see more and more people were watching it every week. And then I would be like, oh my God, did you see this movie? It's actually really funny. I completely agree. It's a very sweet portrait of female friendship that could almost be ruined by a viral video. It like hit on the various tropes of teen movies in a really fun and interesting way. And um, I was charmed. At number six on our top 10 movies of the year, a documentary. It's called Wham! Exclamation. And it is about 
the duo Wham from the 1980s and George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. And they kind of relive the arc of their career from when, when they were best buddies in the 1970s to the point when they became absolute pop icons to the point where they broke up because Wham was not even together for that long. To me, I, when you think about some of those hits, in my memory, they were such a big presence in music. But the truth is, they were not even together for that many years. No, not at all. That surprised me as well, Jessica. There are two anecdotes from this movie that I want to share. The first is that Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go was inspired by a note that Andrew Ridgely left on George Michael's bedroom door telling him to wake him up before he left, which I thought was funny. And then secondly, in 1984, George Michael was so intent on having four songs hit number one that year. And he had three, Careless Whisper, freedom and wake me up before you go-go. And so toward the end of the year, he like holds himself away for a bit, writes a song called Last Christmas, which he's like, this is going to be it. This is our fourth number one song of the year. And then gets a call saying that actually there's a whole bunch of musicians who are going to do a Christmas song called Do They Know It's Christmas. Of course, that band was Band-Aid to benefit Ethiopian famine victims. And Last Christmas ended up at number two. And of course, Band-Aid's great anthem ended up at number one. So that story just charmed me and amused me. And yet, you know, you still hear Last Christmas all the time and every time I hear it I'm like this is such a good song unlike many Christmas songs I don't just need to listen to it in December Jessica I did a little digging and Last Christmas has hit the top three in the UK Billboard chart every year since 2017 and by the way rightfully so he was just so brilliant listening to some of those early demos was so much fun and so interesting and both of them but really George Michael's voice is just so stunning and so singular and the fact that they both knew exactly what they wanted the sound to be as such young guys was endlessly fascinating to me. And this movie has some poignancy at this time of year because George Michael died on Christmas Day in 2016 unfortunately. Yeah it's a good way to honor a group that was not together very long but has had a massive lasting impact. At number five is The Killer, the David Fincher-directed thriller about a solitary, cold, methodical killer who waits in the shadows watching for his next target. Jessica, I know you loved this one. Talk to me about what made it so special to you. I just thought this was David Fincher and Andrew Kevin Walker at their best. Andrew Kevin Walker, of course, wrote Seven, and this is this reteaming of these two kind of giants in the film industry, and it's so funny, and it can be very... Very silly and very tense. And again, it's sort of what I was saying about Sam Esmail. David Fincher knows how to frame a shot. Michael Fassbender plays the killer. We never know his name. He can be very dry and he can really just deliver a one-liner and a ridiculous moment so, so well. But for me, the thing that puts it this high on our top 10 list is one scene in particular between Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton. Her character is called The Expert, as Fassbender's is called The Killer. And the two of them sit opposite each other and it is tense and it is beautiful and it is stressful and it is just glorious watching them ping pong off each other. I just love that scene. I want a whole universe to this. I want another movie just called The Expert because I definitely need more of this particular Tilda Swinton character. 
At number four on our top 10 films of the year list is Nyad, of course, about the great Diana Nyad who set out at the age of 60 to achieve a nearly impossible lifelong dream, which is to swim from Cuba to Florida across 100 miles of open ocean. Oh my goodness, Annette Bening plays Diana Nyad and Jodie Foster plays her best friend slash coach Bonnie Stoll and the two of them together. I mean, are you kidding me? The number of Oscar nominations between these two women. It's like you almost just needed their names on paper and you're 50% of the way there. And then they deliver these really outstanding performances. Agree completely. Jessica, two things stood out for me about this movie. One, Jodie Foster's bandana work is top notch. She has a bandana in every color and every hairstyle to match every outfit. And it is really impressive to watch. But more seriously, I love the exploration of female chosen family friendships of your late 50s and 60s. I thought that was really poignant and sweet. It explores a certain community here in LA that doesn't get a lot of attention. I thought it did it accurately. And I also like that Diane and I had, she's this really powerful protagonist, but she is flawed and she is self-centered and she's not particularly likable. And yet you're rooting for her to accomplish this incredible feat. The performance that Annette Benning gives, she is like, oh, you want to see me at my absolute worst? Because of course Diana Nyad is swimming in the ocean with salt and her face is swollen and she is like just sun everywhere. I mean, you can see she's in pain at times. And when you see what Annette Benning does to become this character, it's really damn impressive. Not surprising. Both Annette Benning and Jodie Foster were nominated for Golden Globes. Annette Benning in the female actor in a motion picture and Jodie Foster in the female actor in a supporting role. And I could see a world where they both win. I do think this will be part of the Oscar conversation going forward. Just to give a shout out to like a guy in the movie, not that we have to, but I'm going to, Reese Ifans, who plays John Bartlett, who's Diana Nyad's tracker, I just thought gives a very funny and just understated and maybe underrated performance. And if you're interested in learning more about all these characters in real life, you can head over to thedoom.com because we've got the backstory on all of them and you can learn about Diana Nyad's amazing feat. At number three is The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar. It's a beloved Roald Dahl short story about a rich man who learns about a guru who can see without using his eyes. And then this rich man goes about trying to learn to do that in order to, like, build the gambling system and make millions of dollars. And I describe this as a Russian nesting doll of a movie. The narrative starts in one place, and then you keep opening it up, and there's more narrative, and then you start putting it back, and the narrative disappears again. I was so charmed by this and so surprised and... And it's a short film. It's 40 minutes. I could have watched two hours of it easily. How about you, Jessica? Reminded me of a pop-up book in some ways. That totally. you, every, you turn the page and this incredible thing comes out. And that's how you feel because Wes Anderson, I mean, a lot has been said about the look that he creates in his films. The color palette he uses. It can be very cutesy at times. And to me, this specific story and this world just matches so well with what Wes Anderson loves to do. The sets in this first one, there are four parts, actually, four different films. The sets in the first one are so mind-blowingly beautiful and they move around and the actors move with them. It really feels like you're watching this incredible theatrical experience at times. And then you think of the cast. Ray Fiennes plays a Roald Dahl version 
Ben and he's kind of the narrator and he brings you into this story. I love Benedict Cumberbatch as Henry Sugar. And then you have someone like Dev Patel, who I love, best head of hair in Hollywood, who plays this doctor and Ben Kingsley. Oh my gosh. Ben Kingsley is one of my favorite actors, period. And to see him show up in this was just such a special treat. Whimsy is often a word that's used with Wes Anderson films. And I think that they achieved some really nice storytelling and some really interesting things without going too whimsical. I agree with you. In some ways, I like this more than Asteroid City, which was Wes Anderson's theatrical release this year. And I think a lot of people, one thing that I found very interesting this year was a lot of people said, sometimes I can't stomach the Wes Anderson-ness of it all. It's a little too much for me. And yet everyone I know who saw this loved it. It was just the right amount. At number two on our top 10 list, Maestro, written and directed by Bradley Cooper, his follow-up to A Star is Born. And it's about the lifelong relationship between music conductor legend Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia Montalegre Cohen Bernstein. Bradley Cooper plays Leonard Bernstein and Carrie Mulligan gives such an extraordinary performance as Felicia and the rest of the cast, wonderful Matt Bomer, Michael Urie plays Jerry Robbins. Sarah Silverman plays Leonard Bernstein's sister, Shirley, in a really interesting, dramatic performance. And what's so interesting about this film and sort of the crux of it is how Leonard Bernstein struggled with his sexuality throughout the years. You have to remember he was born in 1918. He died in 1990. And as we spoke about earlier with Rustin, gay sexuality was not exactly accepted during those times. And so he had these homosexual affairs throughout his marriage. And it really is about how Carrie Mulligan's Felicia reacts to this and struggles with staying in this marriage and participating in this marriage and like lauding his genius, but also knowing this secret that he has. And I thought it was really, really interestingly told. The thing that struck me about this movie, I was talking to a friend about it and I was having a little trouble sort of digesting it at first. And then she said to me, no, it's actually Leonard Bernstein's story told through Felicia's eyes. And once I saw it that way, it changed it for me and something clicked. And I was like, oh yes, of course, that makes a lot of sense. And she deserves all the awards and I hope they're bestowed upon her because her performance is just terrific. Well, she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Performance. Bradley Cooper also nominated for Best Performance and then Best Director. The film was nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama also. I have to say, and I imagine that this resonated with you as well because it's getting a lot of attention, but there is well into the movie, I mean, at least three quarters into the movie, Leonard Bernstein, who's already an incredibly famous conductor, conducts a Mahler piece in London. And it is six plus minutes that is more thrilling than any action sequence I have ever seen. It is riveting to watch him conduct, to watch him throw his body. His whole body is dripping in sweat and to watch him commit to conducting this piece, which is actually what Leonard Bernstein did. I mean, he it was basically like aerobics every time he put a conductor's baton in his hand. And I was so moved by that scene. And I know Bradley Cooper has talked about this, that he just studied for years and years and years to be able to pull off that scene. And 
I think he did. I could not get over that. I've thought about that scene so many times since I first saw it. And I found myself so locked into that scene. I feel like I didn't blink for six straight minutes. And when the piece ended, and there's a dramatic moment at the end that I won't spoil, when that scene ended and I kind of took a breath, I realized I had tears running down my face. It's just such a powerful moment. Jessica, as you say, this film is visually stunning and Bradley Cooper makes it really interesting and I think a choice that works of starting this film in black and white and then moving throughout the decades into color and the film's black and white style and color style both reflect the narrative timeline that's going on in the film and I thought that was really smart and interesting too. Yeah. One other thing that I have to mention about it, which is very early on, there's just this kind of conceit that Bradley Cooper does as a director that at one point Leonard and Felicia are sitting and they get up from a table and they end up running through different settings. You almost can't even explain it in words. It's such a visual feat that he pulls off and it's so clever and it's so interesting. That was where I thought, oh, Bradley Cooper, you're not just like a one-time, two-time director. You actually have a vision. And the number one movie on our list for 2023 is May, December, directed by Todd Haynes of Carol and Far From Heaven fame. Julianne Moore and Charles Melton play the titular May-December relationship. They met when Charles Melton's character Joe was 13 years old and Julianne Moore's character was an adult. They work together at a pet store and they embark on a fair. And through that time, she goes to jail. They remain married. And 20 years later, the film picks up and Natalie Portman comes to town. She plays an actress named Elizabeth. And she is going to be starring in a film based on Julianne Moore's character, Gracie. And this actress, Elizabeth, infiltrates herself into this marriage and this life in like a really penetrative way as she's trying to study Julianne Moore's character. I saw it back in March and it has stuck with me the entire time. Jessica, I think I was telling you about it back in March when I first saw it and how much I enjoyed it. This movie, and apologies to Maestro, has the best musical score of any movie all year. The way that Todd Haynes employs music for humor and dramatic effect and to mimic telenovelas is just so subversive and brilliant. It had me roaring. I read something very interesting about this film. Someone wrote that if you saw it in a movie theater because there was a theatrical release for the film, then you think it was a comedy. If you watched it at home, you think it's a drama just because of how different people react to it. But yeah, I mean, the scenes between, you mentioned this, how Natalie Portman's Elizabeth is studying every single move in detail and tilt of the head and flip of the hair and occasional lisp of Julianne Moore's character, Gracie. Watching that happen is so eerie and compelling. And Natalie Portman, to me, has never been better. So many scenes of Natalie Portman's character just studying every single move and mannerism of Julianne Moore's Gracie. How do you put on makeup? How do you sit? You know, how do you cross your legs? And it, it's just riveting watching one actress study another. Also, have to give a shout out to Charles Melton sure. from Riverdale. I knew him a little bit from the show. I had no idea what he was capable of as Joe. I'm thrilled that all three of these actors were nominated for Golden Globes. And it was also nominated for Best Motion Picture 
musical or comedy. Jessica, I do want to say one more note on Charles Melton. His character at this point in time is probably in his early 30s. He has two kids who are graduating high school and going off to college, and he's just starting to realize the severity of what happened and how he may not have been old enough to give consent and make decisions at 13 years old, even though in a perverse way, his character may have thought, oh, I wanted this too because I was in love with her. And the way the relationship with Julianne Moore's character Gracie sort of flips and he's both like the young husband, but also a parent to her. It's really a study in some really messed up family dynamics and is compelling to watch. And I think one of the things that Todd Haynes does that is so brilliant is he kind of brings the audience into it. The audience does not get off scot-free here because as a viewer, you are at times judging them or maybe not judging them, or you might think, oh, Natalie Portman's character, Elizabeth, she's the one beyond reproach. She's just playing this character. And then your choices and your biases are really called into question over the course of the film. The other thing I want to point out about this film is many people may remember the Mary Kay Letourneau story. She was a teacher who had an affair with her student. She also got pregnant. She went to jail. And the whole tabloid culture that evolved around that story, it is mimicked and parodied in this film in such an interesting and compelling and real way. And, you know, you see Julianne Moore as Gracie, her face plastered all over National Enquirer and People magazine. There's a shot of a photo that's folded over. And at first half of the photo is just her holding a baby. But then you unfold the photo and she's in um, leg shackles because she was in prison. He doesn't shy away from the tabloid nature of this type of story. And I found that really compelling and really resonant with the real world. Well, Henry, those are our top 10 movies of the year. But as we did with our TV episode, which you can still listen to, we wanted to give a couple of honorable mentions. In this case, honorable Jennifer mentions, because we both have Jennifers on film who really stood out. Jessica, my Jennifer is Jennifer Aniston hanging from the Eiffel Tower in Murder Mystery 2. Murder Mystery 2 is a fun romp. I'm not going to say that it would make any top 10 list of mine, but I laughed a lot. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where Jennifer Aniston is trying to fight crime and she is dangling from the Eiffel Tower. We have a really fun story on Tadoom.com about how that scene was filmed, talking to the stunt double and how Jennifer Aniston was involved. It's just a scene that stuck with me through the entire year and I wanted to single it out. My honorable Jennifer mention is for Jennifer Lopez in The Mother. I'm just going to read this line of dialogue. She does it better. But the line is, I'm a killer, but I'm also a mother. And she plays an assassin. She's in hiding to protect her daughter. And she's hiding from these other super creepy guys led by Joseph Fiennes. She headbutts. She knife fights. She crawls on the ground like commando crawls. She's got amazing fur hoods. It's J-Lo at her best. And I love kick-ass J-Lo. I mean, shout out to Enough. When J-Lo did Krav Maga, just going to say this one's even better. Let's not forget her hair, which deserves an Academy Award just in and of itself. It stays beautiful under those fur hoods. It sure does. I mean, only J-Lo can do it. Henry, that's going to do it for us for our best films of the year. You're welcome. We've basically hooked you up. You can avoid your entire family over the holiday break and catch up on these 10 wonderful films, not to mention a couple of honorable mentions. This is the last episode of Now on Netflix for 2023. We'll be back with a new episode on Thursday, January 11th, where we'll be previewing the new Kevin Hart comedy, Lift, and the reality competition series, The Trust, A Game of Greed. Until then, have a great end of the year. We'll see you in 2024.